All right, Bridgeway, welcome again. Excited to dig in God's Word with you. And if you're on the stream, we want to welcome you in as well or one of our video venues as we continue in the series of Being Jesus. Now, I'm a, a parent of four kiddos, and I love being a parent of four. It brings some complexity and some demanding situations daily, almost moment by moment in life. But uh, it, it's a privilege, uh, truly. Um, I learn more and more about myself and about the Lord each day and trying to be a parent. But being a parent of four kids, one of the things I love to do is playing with my kids. Um, one, just because of the fun we have, but also because I know of, it's often a pathway to their hearts. Um, just the connection that that brings, the shared experiences, the laughter and the fun that we have together. But what, one of the other things I love about playing is it just kind of simplifies life because I don't know if I've got four kids, like I said, and uh, I've got two daughters in middle school, so that brings a, an, an added um, a layer of demand and complexity to life, right? Um, and so I'm, I'm just thankful to be able to kind of slow life down and play with my kids because it, it just makes life a little more simple, you know, because my kids, like, for instance, they love, my two boys especially love playing with their Nerf guns. Those things are incredible inventions, right? They're, they're great, except for when the aim of the Nerf gun for my, my boys ends up aiming towards their sisters and tagging one of them when those little discs go flying through the air. That doesn't work out so great. That starts World War III in our house, and we have to kind of figure that out. Um, but or one of my passions, well, my passion growing up was playing basketball. And, and really, a lot of times that became my identity. That's what I wanted people to see me as. That's what my life revolved around is, is playing basketball. And um, now for my eight-year-old son, he loves basketball. And so I love playing with him and us just having those shared experiences. But again, I, I think basketball is great, at least for me, because like I said, life gets complex and gets demanding. And so it's just nice to do something where the goal and the target is simplistic, right? You put the ball in the basket, basketball. I've got it, you know? <laughs> or with, you know, a, a Nerf gunner. My son loves shooting his BB gun with his grandfather when we go back to Tennessee. And just the simplicity of the target, the crosshairs, right, is just there. You know what you're aiming for, and you know if you get it, and you know if you don't. Because our life today, I don't know if you feel a lot like me, it's just complex. There's a lot of demands going on. The world gets more complex, more information, more demands on our life, more opinions and commentary that go on. Even our world, we, we've got whole media outlets, TV channels, and radio stations all revolved around giving commentary to what's right and what's wrong in our world. Some of that's helpful, some of that's good, but it just it, it makes life more complex, I feel like. And some of you, for some of you guys in here, your whole vocation, your livelihood is built around judging others, right? I mean, some of you, you might be a judge, you're in the law profession. Teachers, you guys are about to go back to school. A lot of what you do is giving critique and judgment and coaching or for coaches, coaching others along and helping them not do what they shouldn't do and do what they should do. You know, all, I mean, we're, and we get caught up in that. And there's all, we play all kinds of roles as a parent and different things where we are giving judgment and critique about other people's lives, their actions, their attitudes, and things like that. Now, my favorite one is sitting in front of the TV and refereeing the referees. I love that. You know, yelling at the TV and saying, oh, that was a bad play. I get to judge what they're judging. And I, I think I'm usually right. I'm really good at that. So, uh, but our life is full of that. We're revolving around that. And that's what I'm thankful about scripture. 
Because in a complex world and a lot of people and a lot of opinions, a lot of philosophies, a lot of ideas out there, what we see in Scripture, at least what I see in Scripture, is is a simple target, a goal that I can point my life towards. I see in Scripture kind of a, in a sense, a programming language for you computer geeks like me out there. You know, a programming language, kind of a, a code, if you will, that gives a simple crosshairs of what my life is to be directed towards. Because I see in that... You know, Almost like if you take and if you want to drown on your outline there, just a, a, a simple crosshairs, the vertical part of that is our relationship with God, that God desires to have a oneness of what we could say a covenant relationship with us. That was his desire from the very beginning and, and extended all from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That's what he desires of us is that covenant relationship, one relationship. And then along with that, the, the horizontal part of that crosshairs is our representation of God to the world, that in our relationships with other believers, in our relationship with the world outside of the church that that we live in, that we are to be a part of, we're to represent him. And so I'm thankful for God's word that we're going to look at today that gives that simple goal, that simple target, because I know more and more in my life that where I aim my life is that's where I'm going to head. And scripture Especially today as we look at the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Give us this simple crosshairs, the simple target goal that we can aim our life at. And up until this point in the Sermon on the Mount, as we've been studying it through the Being Jesus series, we see that much of Jesus' teaching is correcting what the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, had been teaching. They had been teaching a a law, a a different code that focused on the external things and and missed the very heart of what God was after. Because even in the Old Testament, God's intention all along was not just to give commandments. Most of us know the Ten Commandments, but those commandments were ultimately to guide those people to be his people, the nation of Israel to be his people. His intention was to build a new people with new hearts, new attentions, new affections, ultimately for him and for his glory. And the Pharisees had totally missed that. They were adding all these laws and then modeling a life that was all about the exterior and missing the interior part, the devotion of their life to God. So the the expectation, even in the Old Testament, was to be a people transformed by God's Spirit, and then we see this critically important again in the Sermon on the Mount, as we'll look at it today again. And the fulfillment Jesus had in mind here and in his teaching in relation to the Old Testament is not simple external conformity, but rather a heart alive to God. And he fulfilled, he said, I came not to, uh, to take that a part of, of the law, but to fulfill it. And he did in perfection. But really what we see is he takes it up a notch. Because I think that really we could say the main idea of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus gives us a, a code, a playbook, if you will, of our lives as kingdom citizens. We are sons and daughters of a heavenly king if we're in Christ. And he gives us a new playbook, a, a new code, if you will, that we are to live as citizens, as Christians, that it must manifest, it must be realized, it must show up in a righteousness that exceeds even that of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees' sense of what they're teaching of the righteousness and the religious leaders of that day and and even in our day is all around the external, the exterior, and misses the heart. 
And so Jesus, even in his teaching we hear in the Sermon on the Mount, takes it up a level by going down into our hearts. And this righteousness only comes, that we should attain to, only comes as we are changed by God's grace and power. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ. And so if you've been with us through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you'll see in this exceeding righteousness that Jesus talks about, really shows up in four areas. We first looked at how this exceeding righteousness comes out and should play out in our attitudes and how we respond to the circumstances of our life. And Jesus gives us a new way to respond to those things as those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And then he moves that exceeding righteousness should be evident in our desires. Because really, I know a lot of times we use this phrase that Jesus is in our heart and most of us who grew up with that phrase, I think what we're really, hopefully what we're saying there is Jesus not is just in our heart, but he is our desire, he is our satisfaction and what he desires, I desire. And then third, what we saw um, as the Sermon on the Mount continued is that our exceeding righteousness would show up in our ambitions that seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things that we typically are ambitious for would be for us as we seek him first. And then today as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, now this fourth part is we're going to see that our exceeding righteousness should also show up in our relationships. Our attitudes, our desires, our ambitions, and now our relationships. Our relationship, obviously first in our covenant relationship with a heavenly father, but then it should reach out in that, that crosshairs of relationship and responsibility, our responsibility out to, to our faith community, those in Christ and then those outside of Christ that our responsibility and our relationship goes to. We should pursue those just as Jesus did. So let's read here. I want to invite you, if you want to, if you brought your Bible and want to grab one of the blue Bibles in the, under the chairs, we're going to be looking at a combo passage of Matthew chapter 7 and Luke chapter 6 as we look in this latter portion of the Sermon on the Mount. On the screens is going to be kind of a blend of those two passages put together as you see the Gospel of Matthew in orange and Luke in white. And so we're going to read through those. There's many places where Matthew and Luke use the exact same words and probably they show up in orange. But many of these, if you looked at them side to side, they say the exact same things. And so we're going to, we've got a lot to go through and we're going to try to race through that and see this code, this playbook that Jesus lays out for us, um, not only in what he teaches us, but I, what I love about this is I think we get in the mind and the heart of Jesus because this is how he lived. This is how his, this was his attitude and his desires, his intentions and how he approached relationships. So he says, judge not that you would not be judged. Now, we all know that part. I think even those who've never cracked open a Bible know that verse, right? That's probably the most quoted or misquoted portion of the Bible in our society today. It says, judge not that you would not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And so this idea of pronounce is kind of a verdict that, that is a final um, statement of someone's heart or intent. And then he says, condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive, release, let go. And I'm not going to sing, let it go. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And so we begin to see this new exceeding righteousness that Jesus is describing to us of how we 
should relate to others, both in the kingdom and outside of the kingdom, that our lives would show this very fact that we would judge not, let's be judged, condemn not, you will be condemned. And so we see he's teaching us just the dynamic of relationships, but the way we treat others is how we will be treated. But he calls us to a higher standard. And so the question then a lot of times is, should we judge? And so that goes to our fill in the blank today, if you want to fill that in, that in our relationships, judgment... And assessment are two different things. Judgment and assessment are two different things. Because the question is, should we judge? Well, I think what Jesus is teaching us here first is that we need to judge ourselves. We need to judge ourselves because we are not the ultimate judge. He is, and we'll see that later in this passage. He's the ultimate judge, and so we should not try to take his place with pride that we know the intent of man's heart. He only does. And so our judgment should not lead ultimately to condemnation, condemning someone to, to, to hell or even to heaven. We don't know someone's heart. I learned from a friend and mentor, we, we are not to judge someone saved or unsaved. We don't ultimately know someone's heart. So we just display and share the gospel to all we come in contact with. And so, but so... And so should we judge our society? Like I said, we all know this passage. I mean, probably people who have never even been around the church know this. Don't judge me. Why are you judging me? You don't have no, you don't have any right to judge me. You don't have any right to say that's right or wrong. Should we judge? I I think as we look here, Jesus is teaching us that judge. I mean, there's almost an expectation that we do, especially we judge those inside the church. Maybe not though our focus shouldn't be the judgment of those outside, but especially those inside. Because he's given us a new standard in which to relate to one another. That first, that as forgiven people, we should forgive. Because if we don't, we're, we're in a sense displaying a sense of hypocrisy because God, our Father, has forgiven us. And so we should be willing in imitating him to forgive others. So the first step of judgment really is judging ourselves, looking at us. I think he's also getting at those who are constant critics. Those of us who, who can be kind of nitpicks and, and the moral police who are always have a critical thing to say can never are always kind of glass half empty. I don't think that is the hope of Christ or that's the, the picture of Christ that we need to display. Paul helps us a little bit in the thinking of should we judge. Look here in first, well, I'll read this to you. First Corinthians 5, first Corinthians 5, 12 and 13 says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you to judge those inside? Yes, but God will judge those outside. So here's what he's saying in a sense as Christians. We should be judging one another. We should be helping one another grow into that target, that aim of deep relationship with the Father and covenant and representation of the kingdom to the world. We need to be growing that, so we need to help one another. But what we don't need to do is so all of a sudden become moral police uh, to those outside the church. It shouldn't pr- surprise us that their attitudes and ambitions are different from Christ. And so, in, and so instead of going to the world and being the moral cops as much as we, we often focus on or going to the outside world and offering them some kind of behavior modification, we need to offer them Jesus because he gives them redemption, forgiveness, and, and life that they so desire that they're chasing after in other ways. Instead, as Christians, we need to do what we often tend to do in reverse. We don't need to let each other get away with sin. We don't need to uh, 
allow us uh, to to be the moral police and complaining about other the behavior of non-Christians, but instead we need to prepare ourselves through self-judgment to be able to minister others more fully and more completely. See, what Jesus is condemning is moving from judging to condemning. We see in this passage, he's condemning, condemning, because that's, he's the only one who can do that. But for us, he's encouraging us to move from judging to forgiving. And so it continues in how we relate in this, you know, as citizens of the kingdom. Then he says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure with which... For, the, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so again, I think we can look at this in the context of relationships and how we're to be relating to those inside and outside the church as we represent Him. A lot of times when we look at this passage uh, through, through giving and money and things like that, but I, I wonder if really what He's getting at is helping us again that if we give and we're generous to others, we're going to have that return to us in relationships because as I look at priority in, in my life, my spiritual life is first, my relationship is second, and the financial stuff is way down the list. And Jesus is always teaching us how to invest our life. And so if we would give to others and relate to others in, instead of keeping for ourselves and our own selfishness and self-interest, but be willing to give to others, I think the return on that is more dynamic relationships and more uh, rich relationships. Yes, um, this picture of good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It was this picture of when uh, they would go to the market with a bowl to fill up grain. They'd have the grain pulled in, and like you and I, they'd want the most for their money, right? So they'd kind of shake the bowl and, and press it down and let the grain settle so more could be poured in to the point to where they would, you know, see overflowing, and they would tie their garments with kind of a pocket around their chest so that so the grain overflowing would catch into their pocket. I guess it would be kind of like a kangaroo, right? I don't know. So, But they just that idea of, overflowing and that's that's the life that god offers us jesus said i came to give you life and life abundantly so i think of an icy a slurpee right what do you do when you get that you go up to the machine you right fill it up but you know you can get more into that sucker right so what do you do shake it up you pound it down on the counter you press it down and you fill it up some more right well, I think if we have the heart and attitude and the intention, just like Jesus, of forgiveness, not condemnation, and, um, judging us first so we can help our, our, our brothers and sisters grow to give, that in those relationships, that, that kind of it will, be, it will respond back to us. A lot of times when we look at this passage, and, and unfortunately, and I think because we're in so much of a society that's materialistic and consumeristic, we look at this passage and, and kind of build a prosperity theology that looks at God as a pinata and my giving as a stick. And if I, you know, if I give, if I hit God with that pinata, out of the pinata will come you know, shiny cars and big houses and things like that because we worship those things as idols and we feel like that's significance and success and we feel like God should be giving that to us. But I think what he desires more is depth of relationship. He gives us a generosity theology that says he owns it all and we are stewards and, and it's important to how we manage it, not just the 10%, but the 100% to invest it into relationships and ultimately the kingdom. And so imagine, I think a lot of times in our poverty, it's not so much lack of money as I understand it. A lot of those who struggle with poverty is poverty of relationship. 
And he desires for deep relationships for us. That's what he's created us for ultimately with him. And so as being forgiven, we should forgive. And I'm not sure if this is a word, but we're going to try it. Getters should be givers. We see that. And next, as we continue along in the Sermon on the Mount, leaders should lead themselves. And to some degree, we're all leaders, all of you. Uh, I've read that it, uh, by, at minimum, you will impact 10,000 people in your lifetime. So we're all influencing and leading others. So we first need to lead ourselves. And Jesus teaches us in this parable. He also told them, can a blind man lead a blind man? And so if you can imagine, we kind of lose some of the texture of this, but Jesus is kind of using hyperbole here, and we'll see it again in a second, where it's almost to the folks gathered on the mountainside, that, the hillside that day, this was almost kind of humorous because he's just making a kind of an absurd statement. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple, a learner, a follower, a pupil, an apprentice in a sense. A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. We've got to remember that this time there wasn't the ubiquitous information and libraries and phones and iPads and computers where information was all around us. All they had was their rabbi as a disciple. This apprentice was learning everything from another person. And so they were limited by what this rabbi had. And so as we look at this parable, I often look at parables. First, it's a picture into the kingdom of God that Jesus teaches us so we can look and see that what we follow it's what we will, we will become. And so we have to be very careful, not only with the people we follow, but with the philosophies, the things we put inside of us, the things we listen to, we will ultimately follow. And so Jesus is teaching just a, a basic principle of life. As we look into the picture of God, is very careful of who we follow. But then it becomes a mirror. After a picture, a parable becomes a mirror. And look about, am I a blind, blind guy just leading others into a pit? Or am I seeing clearly and having my target set on Jesus and his kingdom and my relationship with him? And then thirdly, then it becomes a filter. And this filter, we, I think we see is that we look at our life as a leader, as a disciple, reproducing our life into others of the life of Jesus and what he's put into us. That is the mark of our life. That is the direction and target that we should be living towards. It's what Jesus has put in us that we would reproduce that into others, his character, his competency. And so if you want to put that on your crosshairs, just like relationship and responsibility, that crosshairs, that target of Jesus is his character, who he was on the inside, but also his competency, what he did on the outside. That's our target, and that's what we want to lead people towards. And so then he said, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? And he uses eye because it is, if not the most, one of the most sensitive parts of our body. Why do you... Why do you see the speck? You notice the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not see, you do not notice that log or that beam in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, brother, hey, bro, let me take that speck that is in your eye when there is the log in your own eye. So again, we lose some of the, the just the flavor of Jesus' teaching because again, the the people on the, that mountainside that day, they'd probably be chuckling at this point because Jesus is using such an extreme uh, 
picture uh, that's forming in their mind as he's telling this story of like this guy who's holding like an, a, a light post, right? A two by four out of his eye and he's trying to hold it up and actually thinks he can notice the little speck that it's, that's in his friend's eye and say, hey, you got something there that might cause you a little pain. This is probably uncomfortable. And his, and his buddy's like, dude, you have an electric pole sticking out of your eye. Are you crazy that you think you can point that out, that you can even see what's in my eye? But then Jesus says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. And so we see two things going on here. Again, he's condemning the, the false righteousness. He's pointing out the false righteousness of the Pharisees. He can see clearly, right? He's without sin. He's without a log or even a speck. And he can see in the, to the Pharisees and he sees the log in their eye. And he says, hey, you're not even aware of your own life and you're not even aware of your own heart because you're so focused on the external. But for us, we see here, should we judge? I think we, he helps us see that, that we need to be aware taking the log out of our own eye, just like we did in communion, examining if there's anything in the way of our relationship with God. We need to be doing that. We need to be walking in humility and dependence on Christ because we need each other to take the specks out of each other's eyes. We need each other. I need you and you need me to be walking with each other in community as the body of Christ saying, hey friend, I see something even in the most sensitive places in your life that might not be measuring up to the target that we're all going after, and that's, and that's Jesus in his kingdom. We need each other to do that, and we have to be self-aware, and our, our self-awareness often wanes. We easily fall back into our own ways. We neglect time with the Lord, and we neglect time with each other so we can pursue Jesus together, and we can easily allow the logs of life to get back in. And we need this constant assessment in our life of ourselves, and then assessing our brothers and sisters so we can be growing into the maturity of Christ. Yes, we need to look at our own lumberyard first, but yes, we need to help others be aware of the chips, the irritations in the most sensitive areas of our life so we can grow up into Jesus. Ephesians is one of my favorite books. Ephesians 4, I go back to often, time and time again, because for me it gives kind of a picture of, of where my life should be headed and what I should be pursuing and some great guardrails and handles for me. And in Ephesians 4, um, as Paul goes on there, he talks about how we are to grow up into the fullness of Christ and maturity of Christ. Again, that's the target, in maturity of who Jesus was on the inside and how he lived his life on the outside, the, the, um, the character and competency of Jesus. That's our target. That's where we're headed. And in that Paul, in this uh, Ephesians 4 and verse 15, he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Christ is our head and we are the body. And Paul tells us for us to be able to do that, we need to speak the truth in love. We need to speak the truth in love, speaking to one another, helping, saying, coming to our brother and sister in Christ in truth and in love. Hey, I see this in your life. Hey, I want you to grow in the fullness of Christ. I, I thought I, just in humility I want to point this out. But here's what I've learned. Here's what I learned about myself and, and being a part of the church for a long time. Is we, all, we do a, not a very good job of living this out, I don't feel like, speaking the truth in love. Because I think, well, I'll, I'll speak for myself. 
in my marriage, in my friendships, even sometimes with my children and, and, and things like that with uh, relationships with those in the church. First, I often don't speak. I have an irritation in my own eye. I don't confess it. I'm not humble and, and prop up this sense of self-righteousness or, or I see something uh, in, in a, one of my relationships and instead of speaking that irritation or that, that place that my, where their life is not headed in the direction of Christ, I don't say anything because, I, well, who am I to say anything? Who am I to judge? You know, my life's not good enough. I shouldn't, I shouldn't judge, but that's not what Jesus is telling us here. In, in this exceeding righteousness that we should be living out, we are to help one another. So what happens is it builds up and I don't speak and I don't speak. And so I'm propping up a sense of self-righteousness while then my brother and sister in Christ is continuing in an area of their life in sin or in a direction that's not leading them closer to Christ in the fullness of Christ. Then I've learned what happens when I don't speak, especially in some of my deeper relationships, it can build up and build up and build up. And those I'm supposed to be walking and discipling and and bringing correction to their life, it builds up and builds up. And then when I do speak, I overspeak. I overcommunicate, right? And so I speak the truth, but it doesn't come out in love. So I either don't speak or when I do speak, it's truth, but it's not in love. And what I've found and kind of a rule for my life I'm trying to live up to out of this in Ephesians that I think we see out of the Sermon on the Mount is if I will just speak in love, we will get to the truth. If I will speak in love, we will get to the truth. Because I can't truly judge someone's heart. I don't know your heart. You don't know mine. I don't know the, attent- the intentions and the attitudes that are stirring around in you. I don't know the struggles you're going through. I, I don't, I'm not aware of my own baggage a lot of times. And I don't know the baggage you bring into the relationship and to your life. But if I will just speak in love, we will get to the truth and get our lives back on the path of pursuing Jesus. And in a covenant relationship with him and representing the world or representing the kingdom to the world. So the myth of of you should never judge anyone is exactly that. It's a myth. Because he is the head, we are the body, and in a sense we are like a container that he's wanting to pour as community, as the church. We are this container. He's wanting to pour his love, his grace, his power into us so we can share it with the world. And so as his body, this container, we need to be spurring one another on to be more like Christ. And that comes with true humility and in love pointing out the specks and the little pieces of straw and the sensitive places of our life so we can grow more up in the fullness of Christ because simply He is the way. His supremacy is our path to our joy and His glory. So I believe any leader, we said we're all leaders, any leader wants accountability. Any person who's truly pursuing Christ wants accountability. But we so often neglect helping one another on that path as the body of Christ. Proverbs 9, 8 says, Rebuke a wise man and he'll thank you. Rebuke a fool and he'll hate you. I want to be a wise man. I know you do too. Jesus continues in helping us again in our relationships, being wise about how we invest our life, our intentions, our heart. He says, Do not give to dogs what is holy, what's set apart, what's sacred. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. These dogs, these uh, swine, these pigs were just ravenous, running around with just appetites that that's all that controlled them. And so Jesus is teaching us here that this pearl of great value, the kingdom he's put in us as Christians, we need to hold it with great value and be wise and discerning and assessing where we invest what he's given to us. 
And then we need to be careful about who we follow. Again, he says, beware of false prophets. These people who will disguise themselves, these pseudo kind of leaders, prophets who want to point us in another direction. He says, these people who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. How will we know them? He tells us right here. You will recognize them by their fruits, the results of their life, how they get into just what you see is how you recognize them. And then he gives us this picture. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? Or you see there again, gathered from thorn bushes. So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A good, healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor again can a bad or diseased tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Our life, our hearts will be known by our fruit. And again, guys, your life is of great value. Jesus died for your life to give you a relationship and give you the privilege of representing him. Your life is of great value. And so where you invest it and what you follow is of importance to him. He's given you his, his relationship, his grace. And so uh, where we point our lives and what we follow is of great importance because it's not the intention of our hearts, but the direction of our feet and the path that we take that leads to the destination that he desires for us. A lot of us have good intentions, but it's ultimately the direction of where we point our life, the decisions we make day in and day out, the fruit of our life that will lead us to the destination that he has for us and that you desire. And so he A common proverb in that day is like root breeds like fruit. Like root, like fruit. The basic fault of the false prophet is self-interest, but the true leader cares for others more than his own life. And we see that displayed in Jesus and how our life is to be an example of that as well. Then he continues, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's inside, guys, comes out. So we've got to pay attention to what we're putting in because it will come out and it reveals what's truly in. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will will recognize them by their fruit. Guys, faith without practice is a contradiction in terms. Faith is action and love without obedience is an impossibility. And so many times we, we, we bear fruit in our life and then we say, and, and it can be rotten or bad fruit, and we say, well, don't judge me. And we say, well, that's truly not me. That's not me. We see that all the time. I, you know, as a sports fan, I see athletes all the time bear bad fruit in their life and say, well, that's truly not me. And I'm like, really? It's not? Because, I mean, that's what we see. Right, And so many times, that, that's just the truth of our life. What is inside comes out. Root, where our life is rooted, where we draw nourishment and satisfaction, root leads to fruit. Root leads to fruit. Everything in nature reproduces of its kind. And that's true here. At, now, obviously, Jesus is pointing out to the Pharisees that um, the, the, while they were so worried about the cleanliness of the outside, they missed a clean and pure uh, heart, affection for Jesus on the inside. And that's what Jesus is pointing us to, that we, our life 
would exceed with righteousness from the inside out. And then he closes this portion and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So not only is it just what we say, but it is what we do, he said, and the will of the Father in heaven is his wish and his desire. Are we truly following that? And he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And then I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so we're reminded here there's no substitute for fellowship of Jesus, of true discipleship of Jesus, that our lives want to sense be apprenticing in the not only the teachings but in the way Jesus lived his life, that his character and his competency of his life would be the target that we would follow after and that day by day we would be investing in our lives more and more in that and that we would be helping each other to do that very thing. To know in this passage is this idea that denotes a depth of relationship that God's special people and knowing is, is a two-way street in relationship, right? And that, that not only does he know our hearts and our attentions and he judges those, but we would know his heart and his attentions and follow accordingly. That there would be um, that, uh, such a depth of relationship that it's like family. Because when he says, I never knew you, it's this idea is that, that I don't, you know, you're, I don't acknowledge, acknowledge you as part of my family. And that's what he desires from us. And that is the mark that he leaves for us, that we would know his heart and his desires and follow in that way. And so, so many times in this passage, he says doing. And as we talk about root leads to fruit, that rooting is that right there, that out of the affections and the, the joy and where our attention goes, there our actions would go. And that would be on Jesus in Luke's world, one of the gospel writers we've been reading today in Luke's world and in Matthew's world, you know, so much different than today. We often look at people's um, inside and we try to make it accessible of our own and learning self-awareness or with others through psychology and, and those disciplines. But in Luke's and Matthew's world in this time, the way you saw someone's inside, their heart is through their social interactions. And, I, and that's true for us today. How we truly see what's inside our heart is how we relate with those inside the church and re- relate to those outside the church in our relationships. I wrote this in my notes. His, Jesus's, is a message that calls for total transformation with the consistency of goodness between the inside and the outside. The idea of change of heart and life is a thorough reorientation around God's purpose and is very much present. But neither is acting enough. Taken on its own, the practices for which Jesus is looking are generated out of the good treasure of the heart of a good person, the good root, the will and the desire that's wholly committed to Jesus. So our fruit, in many ways, is the signature of our life. It's unique to us, and it shows what our heart and exposes our heart So there's no substitute for obedience and a personal relationship with Jesus. No substitute for that as we follow in his way. So God is the ultimate judge we see in this passage. 
Jesus is the judge, and he looks at not only the fruit, the external, but the, our heart, and he judges us and looks, do, does he know you, and do you know him? Thankfully, he was judged, as Romans 8 tells us, and he was judged as perfect. And that righteousness that the Father looked at Jesus is offered to us through grace and acceptance and trust of what Jesus did for us, of what we could not do. And that is for you today. If your root is not in Jesus, your invitation, maybe what he has you here for today, is to uproot your life out of the world and your own self-interest and your own path and to do the hard work of uprooting that and planting that into Jesus. You don't deserve that. You will never be good enough to have your life rooted in Jesus. It's just by his gracious invitation that you can pick up yours, and he, he will help you do that. Pick up the tree of your life and root it into him. I love this story um, by Cecil Northcott. Describes a time uh, at a camp of young people um, from many different nations. And she says, one wet night. I'm really not sure what that is after living in Northern California for a while. I don't know what a wet night looks like anymore. It never rains around here. One wet night, the campers were discussing various ways of telling people about Christ. They turned to the girl from Africa. Her name was Maria. And they said, what do you do in your country? Oh, said Maria, we don't have missions or give pamphlets away. We just send one or two Christian families to live and work in a village. And when people see what Christians are like, they want to be Christians too. Guys, that is my desire. And that's what I imagine for us. As we truly chase after the target that Jesus puts for us in this passage, in this Sermon on the Mount, that we would cling to the covenant relationship he offers us. And take hold of the privilege of representing him in this world through his character and competency that he gives to us. That is my desire and that's my hope and that's what I know can happen. Now, all, the, all those things that, they, they, that in that story they didn't do, those are great tools. But ultimately, our life should bear the fruit of Jesus. That, that the world around us, our neighbors around us would see and find it uh, attractive and nourishing and want to pluck the fruit off of the life of our tree and take it from themselves and that would be of Jesus. I've seen this happen. I've, had, I've sat in an apartment with friends, uh, uh, families who were about to leave for Bangkok, Thailand and just remember sitting in this apartment in Atlanta, Georgia and just enjoying the fullness of joy of relationships in Christ and, and just loving life. And I remember sitting there in that room as we were about to send them to Bangkok, Thailand and said, guys, we don't need to worry about strategy and all the cool things we can try to do and all this stuff. Simply, you just need to keep doing this, just loving one another and bearing the fruit of Christ, the love and joy and peace that Christ tells us comes from the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Just do that, and then all you have to do is go to those folks in Thailand and say, hey, come just be with us because this is so attractive. The life of Jesus in you is so attractive. They're going to want to be around that, and they're going to want to follow Jesus. And guys, that is my desire for us as Bridgeway, that our lives will be so rich in the root of Jesus and that we would be bearing the fruit that he gives us the power to do and to follow others in that same way and reproduce our lives into others. That when we do that in our neighborhoods and in our schools and in our workplaces, that they would just see our lives and want to follow Jesus, not follow us, but follow the Jesus in us. And so this is a message from my own heart. 
I'll be honest with you that just in the complexity of life, I see the simplicity of these words that Jesus gives us. He gives us a simple target that our life can be aimed at. That we would live in oneness of relationship, of covenant relationship, where we take on the identity of Jesus. That his character and then how he lived his life would flow through us. And it would be attractive to a lost world. And that we would glorify him. And that, that's it for you. And we need to be humble. We need to not prop up this sense of kind of some uh, pseudo self-righteousness. Who am I to, to talk to you about what's going on in your life and to bring accountability or challenge into your life? Because we need each other. We need to, to, to strip away the self-preservation when a brother comes to us with a little bit of challenge, but to receive that as a gift. That challenge that, uh, that you need to bring in my life, I need to receive that as a gift because you're doing that, I trust, out of the humility of wanting to point me closer to Christ. That's what we need out of each other. And when we do that, we will bear more fruit for the kingdom and for the glory of Jesus. And so in this great paradox of life, of die to live, is to die to the form of the world, to our own self-interest, to following the ways of the world, to die to ourselves and come to life in Christ. That's what he offers you today. He offers you to bear fruit, a life full of, as Galatians tells us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what he desires for you. That's, what sh- that's the fruit that should be coming out of your life. If it's not, why not? What do you need to be assessing about your own heart to see why it's not there? Friend in this room, if your root is not in Christ, today is a day where you can. he is inviting you to him in a oneness of relationship that you cannot create or determine or, or earn. He's done that for you. And you just need to grab hold of him today and find the joy, the abundant life he comes to give you. So I invite you to do that today, to assess your life. Is there the fruit of Christ? Is your life so much bearing the fruit that it's, it's bearing fruit in others' lives? The goal of my life is that the fruit of my life would be on other people's trees, that I would invest my life in others so much that the fruit and the joy of Christ would be on them. And so that's the invitation for you. That, that is the step, the assessment you and I need to make. I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And just as we kind of wrap up and maybe the Holy Spirit's kind of stirring in you to evaluate the fruit of your life and your relationships, your attitudes, your ambitions. For you, of my friends in this room who do not yet know Christ, and maybe through the Spirit He's inviting you and you feel Him drawing you to Him, today is a day where you can repent of your sin, turn from living life your way and turn to Jesus and and invite him to be your Lord, your King, your Master. And if that is you, I want to pray for you. If you would just lift your hand up in the air. If If you never invited Jesus into your life and say today, I want to take hold of my root in the life of Jesus, I just invite you to raise your hand and I just want to pray for you. Thank you. And as I pray before you leave, if there's anything we can pray for you about, if, if you want to take that step of embracing Christ, we have a prayer corner to the left side of the room. You can stop by there, and our team will pray with you and encourage you and give you resources that will help you in your journey with Christ. Thank you.
for getting into God's word today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are good. We thank you, Lord, that you took our place and that you offer us a life we cannot attain on our own. You offer us a life of abundance, of joy, of satisfaction that only comes from you. And so we want to point our life more into that direction. Jesus, we need your help through your spirit, your grace, and your empowerment to to take hold of what you've given to us. And so help us, Lord, in this day and in this week to assess our life. Help us to be honest with ourselves and honest with you about what we see and be willing in obedience to walk more fully in who you've made us to be, your child, your ambassador, your servant, that we would walk fully into that. And whatever is in our life, the quality or the quantity of our fruit that's not measuring up, God, through your gracious touch, help us to begin to move in a way that would more glorify you and lead us to the joy you've created us for. And it's your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen and amen.